Well, good morning. Good morning. Dr. Cox, I think they're half asleep. <laughs> good morning. It is uh, good to be in the upstate of South Carolina. Uh, as, as Dr. Cox mentioned, I grew up in Greenville. So it's always a good day for me when I drive into South Carolina. I see this beautiful blue sign with a palmetto tree on it and a crescent moon that says, Welcome to God's Country. Uh, it's good to be out of Texas for the weekend. I did have to have my passport stamped when I flew into Atlanta yesterday because Texas is a foreign country uh, coming back into the U.S., so that's good. It was, uh, it, I, I did have a bit of an interesting night. I flew into Atlanta, stayed in Georgia last night because of the home game yesterday uh, just north of us. But having grown up in Greenville, my blood runs orange and purple. And I think I about lost every bit of it last night, <laughs> watching us try to beat the bumblebees. <laughs> but it is a good Sunday, because there's no better Sunday than when tigers can come together and be happy and any Gamecocks in the room are disappointed. <laughs> if you do have garnet and black blood this morning, we will be glad to share Christ with you when the service is over <laughs> so you can come to Jesus. And if you get offended at that, I'm sorry. That's just how it goes. It is good to be with you uh, again. It, it, as I mentioned, it's always good to be uh, in the upstate, be back in South Carolina where I can say buggy and y'all know what I mean, where I see bojangles everywhere because we do not have either of those in, uh, in Texas. Also want to bring greetings to you from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of your six Southern Baptist seminaries serving the Southern Baptist Convention. We've got about 4,000 students either on campus in Fort Worth. Notice I did not say in Dallas because saying that I live in Dallas would be like saying to you, you live in Greenville. You do not. You live in Anderson, right? Those are two different things. Fort Worth and Dallas are completely different. Dallas is where the East peters out and Fort Worth is where the West begins. We do not say the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex in Fort Worth. We say the Fort Worth-Dallas-Westroplex because we do not go into Dallas County. We just try to stay out of it as much as possible. But I bring greetings from one of your six seminaries. We are very, very grateful uh, for your sacrifices because every time you put a dollar into the offering plate, part of that money comes on to us at Southwestern Seminary. We're able to educate students from all over the world in fact, one of, our, uh, one of our PhD students, one of the students that you get to help finance his education is the pastor at the First Baptist Church of Cairo, Egypt. He's currently obviously living in Cairo and does his PhD with us online, but every time he comes on, he's coming to us from Cairo, Egypt. Another one of our students, I won't tell you his name or particularly where he is, but he lives in northern Nigeria, about 20 minutes from the headquarters of Boko Haram. Now, if you know anything about terrorism in the world, you know that Boko Haram is one of those very nasty terrorist organizations, and every time this student comes on uh, to do his PhD work with us, he says, hey, if my internet turns off or the lights turn off or something like that, please, please pray for me, because it could very well be that Boko Haram is coming into our village to, to try to kill us. So these are the types of students that you have a part, Concord, in educating, Students all over the world. In fact, we have students in Madagascar. Uh, our church in, uh, in Joshua, Texas, just south of Fort Worth, sent a missionary couple to Madagascar just a few years ago. So it's great to be able to do that. And thank you for, for your uh, sacrifices in giving. Just to give you a sense of how much 
that means to us, about one year of graduate education at Southwestern Seminary, full-time load, costs about $6,000 for a student to go. An average graduate load at a secular or a state school costs about thirty dollars to $35,000. So that's a substantially lower cost to be able to study at the graduate and at the doctoral level at Southwestern Seminary, and we are very, very grateful for that. If you've got a Bible, whether print or electronic, find Revelation chapter 5. And as you're turning there, as soon as I say find Revelation chapter 5, you might be thinking to yourself, oh boy, Revelation. There's going to be some tanks in here, right? There's got to be somebody from Russia, being a child of the 80s, the Antichrist during the 80s was going to come from Russia. His name's going to be Nikolai Carpathia or something like that. There's got to be some locusts in here with laser beams coming out of their eyes. I mean, this, there's just got to be some crazy stuff if we're going to look at Revelation. Well, the book of Revelation really is not crazy. The first three chapters are just letters to seven churches that Jesus is speaking to these churches directly. And then chapters four and five are a vision of the throne room of heaven that John the apostle has given. And the rest of the letter talks about two specific things. You ready? I'm going to give you a real quick lesson in eschatology and the last things, the doctrine of the last things. Here it comes. Jesus is coming back in bodily form, and we don't know when. That's it. That's Revelation 6 to 22. And in the end, Jesus wins. That's it. That's the whole book. There's nothing crazy or weird or anything like that about it. In Revelation 5, what we're going to see this morning is a answer to a very simple question. And as you've been focused on global missions here at Concord over the last week or so, and I know as a church you're focused on that all the time, but as we look at Revelation 5, we're just going to ask a very simple question. The question is this, does Jesus really matter? It's a simple question. If he does matter, then what we're doing here this morning and what you've done all week and what you always do around church and as a believer If Jesus does matter, then those things are important, right? But if we answer no, that Jesus doesn't matter, then why are we even here? Let's go get a boat or some jet skis and go out to Lake Hartwell and have some fun. We can spend our money on something a lot better than just a social club if Jesus doesn't matter, because that's what the church would be. So let's look at Revelation 5 and ask and see if we can answer the question, does Jesus really matter? And one of the things I love, not only having grown up in the upstate as a Southern Baptist, but one of the things just that I love is tradition. Some traditions are good, some are bad. Good traditions are Clemson football. Bad traditions are Gamecock football. This is just going to get worked in the whole time. Good traditions are good, bad traditions are bad. One of those good traditions that I love is found in the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, it says that Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium and he read the word of God to the people. Now, you might think that your church services go a long time. Maybe Dr. Cox preaches too long on Sunday. He goes 31 minutes and man, at 30 minutes, the Holy Spirit stops, right? Maybe that's what you think. Well, the book of Nehemiah says that Ezra just read the text for six hours. So you can be thankful for a one-hour service. But it does say that when he read the text, the people stood up in its honor. So if you're able, stand with me, and let's read from Revelation chapter number 5. We'll read the entire chapter. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne 
a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Lord, bless us this morning. Bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Lord, let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us this day at the feet of Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So the first thing I want us to see in Revelation 5 is we try to answer the question, does Jesus really matter? We're going to see in the first four verses. And that is very simply this. Without Jesus, we have no hope. Without Jesus, we have no hope. Now look with me again at verse number one. It starts off and it said, I saw. Who is I? That's John the apostle. Again, God is giving him a vision of the throne room of heaven. So John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now one of the things that I love to do is work through a biblical text. And one of the things you have to know about me is I have what I like to call a type triple A personality. Anybody in here have one of those? If you do, you know, right? So I like to make things neat and have things in order. Anytime I eat French fries, I line them up longest to shortest before I eat them. It's a problem. I recognize that I have it. I'm freely admitting it. If I'm on the 12-step program, though, that's as far as I'm going. I admit that I have a problem. I'm not going any further. So when I see here... John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I want to know, well, why does he mention the right hand? Why is that important? Well, in the ancient world, the right hand is the hand of power and the hand of authority. So there's something in this hand of power and authority. Notice also what John says. That he sees in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who is this him? It's God the Father. Now, why is it important that he's seated on the throne? That means that he is in sovereign command of the universe. He's presently reigning and ruling over everything that takes place. You might say to yourself, well, now, wait a minute. You have no idea what's going on in my life. There's no way that God can be in control of what's going on. 
You can believe he's in control or not. That doesn't matter. He's in control. Nothing has taken him by surprise. Last spring, when COVID really kicked up in the U.S., God didn't go, whoa, wow, I didn't see that coming. Maybe I need to go to plan B. There is no plan B. There's just the plan. God is in sovereign control of everything going on in your life. And in fact, right here, it says he is seated on the throne. He's not absent from the throne room. He's present on the throne, actively reigning and ruling. One Christian theologian named R.C. Sproul said this. He said, if there's one molecule spinning out of God's control anywhere in the universe, I no longer want to be alive. That's what's going on here. So John sees in the hand of power and authority of God, while God is sitting on the throne reigning and ruling, a book. Now if he sees this thing in God's right hand, your immediate question should be, what is that? What is this book? If God's in the midst of reigning and ruling and in the hand of power and authority while he's seated on the throne, there's a book. Man, what's in that book? Tell me what's there. Notice he also says the the book has writing inside and on the back. It's sealed with seven seals. New Testament commentators tell us this, that the book that's in God's right hand, mentioned here in Revelation chapter 5, is the full and complete plan for everything that has, does, or will ever happen in the history of the universe. That's everything. That's what's in his hand. Now, why would it have writing inside and on the back? Well, when contracts were written in the ancient world, the details were written on the inside, and then it was rolled up and sealed, and the summary was written on the outside. So you would know if the seal was broken, if the summary matched what was on the inside, if anything had been changed. So when New Testament uh, commentators and scholars tell us that this is God's full plan, the inside of that scroll, the inside of the book, is God's full and complete plan. And get this, they say that the outside, the summary, is what you're holding in your hand. So imagine that this is just the summary. Imagine how much more is out there. And it's sealed up with how many seals? Seven, the number of perfection and completion in the Bible. And we're going to see that pattern all the way through the chapter. Look at verse number two. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now let's stop right there. When we think about angels, what do we usually think about? We think about these cute, chubby little European babies who have wings and they have a harp and they sit on a cloud and they sell us toilet paper. Right? That's, and now that's in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. Or we think about those really weird, expressionless, wooden figures called willow tree angels. Or maybe you think about the big thing from the, from the 80s and 90s called precious moments. And there's little precious moments angels. But that's not how the Bible pictures angels at all. In fact, the Bible specifically pictures angels in two ways. One is seraphim, one is cherubim. The seraphim are literally beings made of fire. Cherubim are beings covered with eyeballs. Now, why don't we sell those in our Christian bookstores or put those in the, on the mantle at home or something like that? Because it'd scare the kids. And notice it also says this is a strong angel. Sometimes when we think about angels, we think about a voice that might sound like a meeting of Mike Tyson and Mickey Mouse and Michael Jackson in an elevator. A really kind of easygoing voice. But here it says that it's a strong angel. This is a college football linebacker who can run a 40-yard dash in less than five seconds and he bench presses 400 pounds and he is a hoss and when he hits you, you know it. 
and he's grown up eating Texas beef. Or maybe he's eating some good, solid, mustard-based South Carolina pulled pork. Praise God. Texans don't know barbecue sauce. They just know what flavored ketchup is. This says it's a strong angel. This is a big guy. And what is he doing? He's proclaiming with a loud voice. And what is he asking? He's saying, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? The angel wants to know, who is it out there that can tell us what God's plan is? Who is it? Who can do it? Then look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This should remind you of the order of creation. When God creates everything under the earth, in the seas, on the earth, and in the skies. What verse number three tells us is this, is that nothing created can explain God in a full and complete sense to us. Nothing created can explain God in a full and complete sense to us. Now what that means is, as Dr. Cox mentioned, we lived in Utah for six years. I've been studying Mormonism for 25 years. That's my area of scholarship. I love it. I'm a self-professed Mormon nerd. I love studying people that believe different things. Every other faith tradition in the world, both major living religion and any minor sect or cult group or new religious movement, believe in a created being that can explain whatever the deity is they believe in to us. They want to explain God to us. My Mormon friends believe in a created Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a created Jesus. Muslims believe in a created Jesus. On and on and on, and it goes down the line. And right here in in Revelation chapter 5, verse number 3, it says, nothing created can explain God to us. This is why we do missions. John Piper once said that missions exist because worship doesn't. And I would only amend that to say missions exist because false worship does. This is why we do it, because nothing created can explain God to us fully. And then look at the result in verse number four. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John was just lost in hope. He was completely lost in no hope at all. He's just weeping and crying. You know, the state of Utah is the most religious state in the U.S., More religious people there than any other state in the U.S., including Texas. Believe it or not, Texas has 30 million residents. And 11 million of those are professing Christians. 20 million lost people just in Texas. But the state of Utah is the most religious state in the country. It's also the number one state in the country for pornography downloads on the Internet. It's the number one state in the country for diagnosed depression. It's the number one state in the country for prescription antidepressants. It's the number one state in the country for suicide. It's the number one state in the country for plastic surgery. If they're the most religious state, you would think they would be number 50 in all of those categories. But because they have a created being trying to explain God to them in a works-based religion, they have no hope. And they're weeping inside and trying to fix it from the outside in. But brothers and sisters in Christ... We know beyond the shadow of any doubt because the Bible tells us so that the only way to fix that lack of hope is from the inside out by professing Christ. So the first thing Revelation 5 tells us is this, is that without Jesus, there is no hope. 
And then we're going to see in verses 5 through 14 that with Jesus, there's all the hope we could ever want. Look with me at verse number 5. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. In other words, we've got now this person out there, this being who can tell us who God is and open the book and explain everything to us. Well, who is it, according to Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment, that is the lion from the tribe of Judah? Who is it that's the root of David? There's only one person, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Only Jesus can and has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And look at verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now, I want you to picture this for a second. Remember what we've got. We've got a picture of God seated on the throne, reigning and ruling. And right here, John says, between the throne where God is reigning and ruling and the 24 elders, and that represents all of God's chosen people, between the throne and God's chosen people, there's a lamb standing as if slain. That's a really bad translation. It really should be dead man walking. There's a dead man walking between the throne where God is ruling and between God's people. So what does that mean, church? What that means is when God, while seated on the throne in sovereign command, when he looks at his chosen people, when he looks at believers, he doesn't look at us for who we are. He looks at us through Christ. That ought to make you want to be a charismatic right now. I don't know about you, but men, when we have something wrong in our house, I try to fix it first. Something wrong with a car, I try to fix it first. And usually what happens is, is I fix it just enough to make it worse so that I then have to call a professional to come and fix what I messed up and then to fix the original problem. Ladies, if you have a husband or a spouse or, or, or you've got a dad or a grandfather or anything like that that's that way, don't, don't hit the rib right now, right? Not the moment for that. But what this simply means is, is that we mess things up. And in fact, the Bible says that we are sinners and have fallen short of God's glory. There's nothing we can do to fix the problem we created. Only Jesus can do that. So thank God that when he looks at us, he does so through Christ and not directly at us. He looks at us through this dead man walking. And notice also in verse 6, he has seven horns, Horn is the symbol of power and authority in the ancient world, and seven eyes, the symbol of knowledge. He has perfect power, perfect authority, perfect knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Look at verse 7. And he, the lamb standing, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, the last time we saw a picture like this in the Bible of the throne room is in Isaiah chapter 6 when the prophet receives his call. It says that Isaiah sees a vision of the throne room. And Isaiah doesn't approach the throne or the altar. In fact, what happens is one of the seraphim, that's one of those flaming angels, he flies over to the altar and he reaches into the altar with tongs, pulls out a coal and flies over to Isaiah, burns his lips off. So you don't need fiction writing. The Bible's got enough weird stuff in it. Because you get a guy with burned off lips and then God asks him a question and Isaiah starts talking. The last thing you want to do with burned off lips is talk. But this angel flies over to the altar and he reaches in with tongs. Now why did the angel made of fire have to reach into a burning altar with tongs? Because his hand is made of fire, so it's not going to burn his hand when he reaches into the altar, right? He reaches in with tongs because the altar is holy and the angel is not. But now notice here in Revelation 5 that the lamb standing, Jesus doesn't go to the altar. 
and reach in with tongs. He walks up to the throne where God is sitting, reigning and ruling in sovereign authority, sovereign command. And what does he do? He takes the book from God. He doesn't say, sir, may I borrow that? He doesn't reach into his wallet, pull out a library card and say, hey, can I check this out for a few days? He doesn't rent it from Amazon or whatever. He walks up and he takes it. Why? Because he is God. This perfect lamb takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Look at verse 8. And when he'd taken the book, the four living creatures that represents all of God's creation other than humans and the elders, those 24 elders that represent God's chosen people, they fell down before the lamb. Why? In worship. Guess what we get to do every single Sunday morning? Did you know that every single Sunday should be celebrated just as much as you celebrate Easter? Because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we gather together, we should be just as excited as we are on Easter. Because the sun is risen. And we're here to proclaim that. People should drive down the street outside of your church and think, what in the world are these people so excited about? They should hear you singing. You ought to blow the windows out in this building. Because the Lamb has taken the book and explained God to us, and we should fall down our faces and worship before Him. And notice that each one of those elders have a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayer is the aroma of heaven. Look at verse 9, and they sang a new song. I love, I was a youth pastor for two years in Greenville, longest 20 years of my life. And I would always love to have youth say to me, hey, what are we going to do in heaven? I'm going to be so bored. There's not going to be Nintendo. There won't be any games. There won't be a PlayStation, nothing like that. It's going to be so boring. And I would simply respond with, you're going to sing. And they would say, oh, that's all we're going to do? Yeah, well, let's talk about this. There was a song put out a few years ago by a Christian group called... uh, Mercy me, and they, they wrote a song called I Can Only Imagine. We don't have to imagine. The text tells us what heaven's going to be like. Look, it says it right here, verse 9. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a new song, and it's going to say this Worthy are you, the Lamb, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and break its seals. Why? For you were slain. Were is in past tense. That means he was slain, now he's not. He was dead, now he's not. And what did he do with that? atonement with his death or resurrection he purchased the rest part of verse 9 purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation did you know Concord that right now people in Anderson South Carolina are not the only Christians on the planet don't tell anybody there are Christians in Egypt there are Christians in Malaysia in Indonesia in Iran in Iraq in Afghanistan Did you know that now, for the first time in the history of Christianity, there are more Christians in the global south, below the equator, than the global north, above the equator? There are also now more missionaries being sent from the global south to the global north than the north to the south. There are more Christians in places like Africa and South America than places like the U.S. and Western Europe. God is on the move. From every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation, 
You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign on the earth. You, brother and sister in Christ, are a king or a queen in the kingdom. You're a prince, a princess. You're a priest to God. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Let's put that in South Carolinian, a bunch. What are they doing? They're saying with a loud voice. They're also worshiping. What are they saying? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. They're just singing to Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to do here just for a second. I want you to look up here. I'm simply going to read the rest of verse 12, and I'm going to count as I'm reading. All right? And at the end of this, I want you to tell me how many words. You ready? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How many? Perfect worship. We have perfect power, perfect authority, perfect rule, the perfect lamb being given the perfect worship. Look at verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying. Now now just picture this for a second. Earthworms. How many fishermen in the room? Y'all, know, y'all all know what night crawlers are. Y'all live in South Carolina. Night crawlers don't sing. Night crawlers don't make a noise at all. They just catch crappy and bass and catfish. They don't make a noise other than kabunk. But now imagine what John is saying right here in verse 13 is that night crawlers, earthworms, are singing singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Isn't that incredible? Earthworms and Carolina wren, birds and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, are all doing this together alongside of God's chosen people. The four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped. What do these last verses tell us? These last verses tell us that with Jesus, we have all the hope we could ever need. And there's no reason to worry about anything because God is on the throne reigning and ruling. If he's on the throne reigning and ruling in the universe, that means he's on the throne reigning and ruling in your life as well. And if you're in the room this morning and you're a follower of Christ, you've placed your faith and trust in the work of Christ on the cross then God is in control of your life and you can rest in that control. You can rest in the blood of Jesus and nothing else. Because our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Christian brother, sister, this morning, if you're here, You have hope because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith and your trust in Christ. The Bible is very, very plain. You might think you have hope, but deep down inside, when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you know that there's something missing. You know something is wrong. Maybe you're listening online or watching via live stream and you think, I've just... I want to have hope, but I just don't have it. There's no better day than today to place your faith and your trust in Christ. In fact, the Bible says that God created us to be in a 
perfect relationship with him. To have hope in him and to worship him and to enjoy him forever and to give him honor and give him glory. But we messed it up. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis 3 that God said, you can have anything in this garden you want, just don't touch that tree. And what is the first thing we did? We went straight for it. Where's the tree he said not to touch? Let's go. Now, what's interesting about Genesis 3 is this, is that the Bible tells us that God created man and woman to rule over the creation, to rule over the animals. And what happens? The animal goes to the woman, the woman goes to the man, and the man blames it all on God, and the whole thing gets turned upside down. So now the animal rules over the woman, the woman over the man, and the man blames everything on God. God says, Adam, what did you do? It's that woman. God says, Eve, what did you do? It's the serpent. And God says, all right, here we go. And in Genesis 3.15, we get the first example of the gospel ever given to us in Scripture. It says he created us to be in a loving relationship with him, and we broke it. And the Bible says, but there's nothing we can do to fix it. But God sent his one and only son to fix it so that if we'll just place our faith and our trust in him, that the Holy Spirit will regenerate our souls and bring us from death to life. So the very simple question that I have for you this morning is, is not does Jesus matter? The question I have for you is, does Jesus matter to you? Have you placed your faith and your trust in him? In just a minute, there's going to be some pastors standing here at the front. If you have questions about who Jesus is, about what he's done, they would love to answer those questions for you. I would love to answer those questions for you. Because the Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned. That's all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that we get paid for messing up. We're like weathermen. Here comes the bad part, though. But the wages of sin, the payment for our sin is death, physical and spiritual death. But Romans 6.23 also includes the best word in the Bible. The best word in the Bible is not Jesus. The best word in the Bible is but. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible says a chapter early in Romans chapter 5, That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were doing the very thing that God told us not to do, Christ died on our behalf. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if we'll confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. We can't escape physical death. But Concord Baptist, we can escape spiritual death. That's the message of the Bible. And that's our message as Christians to the world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Does Jesus matter? You better believe he does. And if he doesn't matter to you individually this morning, I would beg and plead with you to place your faith and your trust in Christ today. If he does matter and you have placed your faith and your trust in him, then it's our responsibility as ministers of reconciliation to tell as many people as we can about the life-changing message of Christ.